Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Julian Srube, who is assistant professor um, at the University of Vienna. We'll be speaking about a fascinating brand new uh, OUP publication. It's part of the uh, American American Academy of Religion series, actually. Um, And it's called Global Tantra. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Raj, for having me. Oh, you're most welcome. Uh, apparently, you're familiar with the podcast, so you know that it'll be very difficult, my questions, right? <laughs> I hope so. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, how, did you, how did you end up writing a book called Global Tantra? What's the story behind the book? Right. It's a strange title, isn't it? I, it will, I, well, <laughs> maybe for some, but yes. Yeah, I, I chose something that tries to capture the, the, the general topics of the book. And, and those are indeed global historical approaches to religious subjects and Tantra most specifically. So uh, actually the working title of the book and the project that was attached to him was uh, Tantra within the, within the context of a global religious history, which is an extremely dry topic, uh, title I mean. Uh, for which I'm pretty much known. <laughs> I'm terribly uncreative when it comes to titles. They're always very descriptive. And Global Tantra is perhaps my most creative one <laughs> so far. Uh, but it does catch the, 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 the subject quite well. So what I was interested in is the question, how does a subject like Tantra become what it is today, you know, if you just Google it, if you hear about it from people, perhaps randomly, but also within academia, then you have this highly commodified, commercialized, extremely contested thing that is linked to sexuality, to spirituality, often understood as specifically female. And then you have these old traditions, scriptures from the uh, Indian subcontinent, especially, that are clearly in, in, in contrast to these present day developments. So I wondered, like, how did we get there? And there is, of course, a, a great uh, deal of scholarship on that already. There's excellent studies out there on the subject. But what I try to do is to really zoom into a specific regional context, namely in Bengal in the 19th century, and then explain these more global developments from from that perspective. So focus on the local context, uh, look at the global connections that shape that context, and then in turn, look at how these things unfolded on a global level. So you obviously have a knack for succinctly uh, indicating what your book is about. (laughs) So you've already answered that. And you've already touched on this question of, you know, where is it in scholarship and what's the contribution? Uh, We may drill down on those questions further. Um, uh, But before we get into the workings of the book, how did you become interested in this topic? I did research on things before that seem very detached from the subject. 
uh, but that do have a lot to do with it. And, and that is one of the reasons why I found uh, these, this global perspective on the subject useful. I worked on European religious movements in the context of politics. So the, those were always reform movements, often very radical. I worked on both the left, if you want to call it like that, uh, extreme spectrum, but also the right extreme spectrum, socialist movements, uh, national socialism, contemporary neo-Nazi movements. And there's always a focus on esotericism. Uh, being a big question mark, what does that mean exactly, esotericism? Uh, there are organizations like the Theosophical Society that I was very familiar with and that are considered an essential part of esotericism, but that have so far only been researched from a pretty much Eurocentric perspective. So I knew all that stuff quite well in the European and also North American context. And I was interested in exploring these connections that you can trace from there, for instance, through the Theosophical Society and, and Tantra, yoga, the debate about quote unquote magic, quote unquote occult powers and so on, and always in very close relationship uh, with uh, like, like politics. Um, that is something that popped up again and again and, and, and again. So I really wanted to learn more about it. I decided to focus on Bengal. I learned Bengali, a little bit of Sanskrit, and was then ready to dive into the sources. And that's basically what happened in a nutshell. Excellent. What's the book? What's the structure of the book? How is it structured? I do have a pretty fat introduction. Uh, that includes uh, a relatively comprehensive theoretical deliberations. And I found that necessary because, as you probably know, this, this notion of global is, is often used a bit inflationary and uh, people use it in all kinds of different ways. I'm, I have a religious studies background. There's a lot of interest in global historical approaches at the moment, but it's always or very often quite unclear what that means. So what, what, what do we mean with, with global? Uh, what place does that have? Or what place do certain methodologies, theoretical frameworks related to global historical approaches uh, have in religious studies? So I wanted to write quite a bit about that. It's a portion that you can easily skip if you're not interested in these kinds of more abstract things. Uh, but I do have it in the beginning and I find it quite important. Uh, and, and taking off from there, I, what I tried is to zoom more and more into a regional context. So I tried to, roll, to write a book for a broad readership that is not necessarily even familiar, broad, superficially familiar with Bengal or even Indian history or colonial history, all the things linked to that. So I wanted to start with an, a quite easy quote unquote entry point, a specific debate in the 19th century in the theosophical context, the theosophical society I just mentioned. And I, I zoom in from there more and more into Bengal and try to show in the end that certain developments in the, in the reception history of Tantra were not simply a Western perspective, like a Western influence to which Indians just reacted, as you can often read, especially with regard to that subject. But I wanted to learn exactly uh, how these things were dis discussed, debated in an Indian context. I zoom into that, and in the end, I show that a specific development 
um, tied to that persona of Arthur Avalon, uh, who wrote, edited, translated uh, crucial tantric texts and studies on Tantra, how that persona was actually the outcome of local developments that were in turn shaped by global connections. So that's kind of the uh, conclusion, the final point of the book. So um, how are you, since you, since uh, as a proper scholar, you have a very interesting and nerdy introduction. Um, <laughs> tell. Tell us, um, tell us how you use the term global. Uh, I, that is, <laughs> well, I wrote about that on quite a lot of pages, but I tried to do it in, in a nutshell. So um, global does not mean, like in the sense that I use it, uh, does not mean universal. It does not mean planetary. It does not mean that I'm writing the history of planet Earth uh, at that point in time. What I try to show is how notions such as religion, um, such as modernity, such as nationalism, everything that's tied uh, into that, did not just emerge in, in, in one place on our planet, which is usually taken to be Europe and was then like imported in, into the rest of the world. But uh, we do have, of course, the colonial framework with vast power symmetries, uh, all that comes with it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the world, you know, the West and the rest, quote unquote, uh, remain just silent and, and adopted Western ideas. So I tried to write a decentered historiography, and this is what global means to me uh, in that theoretical sense, first and foremost. We try to decenter our historiographical perspective from the usual suspects, if you will, uh, Europeans, mostly North Americans, uh, colonizers and try to understand how things were controversially uh, uh, debated, constantly renegotiated through global exchanges. And global exchanges really means exchanges over vast geographical distances uh, in, in quite different yet interconnected contexts and tracing these connections uh, that are often also referred to as entanglements is the, the most challenging task about that. So global is not just some kind of uh, shotgun approach to history where you try to catch as many stuff as possible or you write about like the 19th century on planet Earth or something like that, but you try to understand really through actually microanalysis mostly how things developed in local context, but then you can also understand these developments when you take into, into account these global exchanges. What sort of sources or evidence do you look at in the book? Uh, that's uh, a wild mix, uh, according uh, to the, the nature of the subject. I, uh, I that's use, why I asked the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I use a, a big bunch of Bengali sources, mostly from the 19th century, uh, some also from the early 20th century. Uh, there's a lot of Anglophone sources, uh, some German and French, if, if I remember it correctly. But I really try to make use of as much uh, Bengali source material as possible. And the interesting thing is that, of course, you have these kinds of publications at the time, around 1900, where especially the educated middle class publishes actually in English. But often they also have um, parallel periodicals, for instance, certain journals where they discuss the same ideas 
in their native tongue, for instance, in Bengali. And you can then compare how, how these things relate to each other. If you have, for instance, the flagship journal of the, Theosophi uh, of the Theosophical Society, the Theosophist, uh, those are all in English. And there's that whole bunch of Bengali intellectuals who reach out um, and they do that in, in, in English and they present these subjects actually to a literally global readership at the time. And for the first time, like they defend Tantra in a specific way. But then they also, of course, publish in uh, Bengali periodicals, they publish Bengali books, they have their own debates, uh, quote unquote, but those debates are related in turn to these debates you can trace in Anglophone sources. So it's, it's mostly rather small publications, but also major periodicals that were globally distributed, such as The Theosophist and uh, quite a bunch of monographs, especially by Arthur Avalon and his affiliates. There, there may be some in the audience who may not quite know who Arthur Avalon is. So who is Arthur Avalon? For a long time, people thought that this was merely, quote unquote, a, a British judge named John Woodroff living in, in Kolkata from the 1890s onwards until uh, the 1920s, 1922, when he left for Oxford. And he was an, like a lawyer first, specialized in colonial law, uh, and was actually raised to the bench at the Kolkata High Court, and finally even became chief justice. So he was quite a prominent figure. And those Arthur Avalon publications on Tantra pretty much came out of nowhere. They caused, they caused quite a fuss, especially among Orientalists who were wondering well, like, who the hell is that? Like, why is there that, that, that extremely erudite, well-informed guy calling himself Arthur Avalon suddenly writing about Tantra in completely different ways than that we know? And after a while, it was leaked, if you will, that uh, the person behind it was John Woodruff and Arthur Avalon also used his name very prominently. So the, the statement is like there were, the intention was to associate the name Arthur Avalon with John Woodruff because he was a, a Christian, a Brit uh, in, in a very renowned position and a very good spokesperson. From relatively early on, people knew, however, that there was actually a team behind that. And the interesting thing is that although we uh, know that for quite a while already, and there has been a great study uh, on that uh, about 15 years ago, showing that that team was indeed not just Woodruff, but still people, uh, including brilliant experts on the subject who are fully aware of all the, the implications and the problems and so on, even those often still refer to Arthur Avalon simply as John Woodruff. And that eclipses the fact that the people behind that name were mostly learned Bengalis, but also other South Asians from Tibet, for instance, um, who joined forces to do the translations, which Woodrow, for instance, wouldn't have been able to do, and to revise the image of Tantra in a way that reflected a particular Bengali um, tradition, like a, a special local configuration in Bengal. So you have a team, you don't have an individual, and the team is like largely determined uh, and, and coordinated and, and put into action by 
people who are not John Woodruff and by people who happen to be Indians mostly and Bengalis mostly. So that is basically Arthur Avalon. It was a, an intentional effort to change the image of Tantra and John Woodruff functioned as a figurehead because everybody knew that he would be a much more serious spokesperson in the eyes of most readers. So do we know who the primary impetus behind that project was? Yes, kind of. Uh, there is not just one reason for pretty much anything, but uh, also there, it's, it's not just one line starting uh, somewhere and then ending in Arthur Avalon also, but uh, what I identified or believed to identify, to have identified as uh, the starting point, if you want to really put it like that, of the whole project, um, I believe to have found it in the 1880s and actually quite precisely in 1880, when a group of Bengali authors started writing in the aforementioned Theosophist journal, and they protest against uh, a negative depiction of, of Tantra that was um, propagated by uh, Dayananda Saraswati, who had just like who had his autobiography just published also in the Theosophist. So you see how that was really a platform where these perspectives came toge together. And as some of your listeners might know, the Arya Samaj and Dayananda were extremely hostile towards Tantra. So these, uh, or what I call the Bengali intervention, tried to change that. They, they wrote, no, what uh, Dayananda's writing is not uh, true. It's not reflecting Tantra. In fact, Tantra is not some kind of degeneration, but it is the most noble core of the, the Vedas appropriate for the Kali Yuga. Uh, so you cannot, according to their arguments, practice uh, in, the, in the same mode as in Vedic times. So you need uh, Tantra to, to do that uh, accordingly in, in our times of decay that ought to be followed by a new dawn, a, a better age. And those authors uh, who propagated these ideas happened to be the same uh, as those who would later collaborate with Woodruff. And they did that first move if you will, before Woodruff even arrived in, in Bengal. So you have a prehistory of it. And that prehistory happens in Bengal. It has a local context, but it unfolds through global channels such as the Theosophist. So did, did they approach Woodruff or the other way around? That's, uh, it's impossible to tell. I mean, we do know that uh, uh, Woodruff most likely got in touch with the subject at the high court. And the reason for that is that the Tantras were an integral part of, of Dharma Shastra and other uh, traditions of learning, areas of learning, and also specifically law in Bengal. So it was not so uncommon that uh, pundits would be consulted on uh, matters relating to law. And those pundits were experts uh, or practice, practicing tantrics, actually. And it seems like this is the milieu, the, the, the sphere in which Woodruff got in touch with the subject. Uh, he was uh, probably first in touch with some of his aides. Uh, uh, we know some of, their, of some of them by name. Uh, they probably introduced him to the subject. And then I can only assume, like, like hypothesize that 
they at some point just sat together and 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 uh, and decided let's do something about the negative image of of tantra is there any credibility to the the account that woodruff experienced the power of the tantras well there is a an account that looks very legendary uh, in the sense that we only have hagiographical accounts of, of certain developments that uh, were concerned either with highlighting the, the brilliance of uh, Woodruff's guru, uh, Shiv Chandra a, a very prominent tantric uh, pundit at the time, or with highlighting Woodruff as the great mastermind between Arthur Avalon. And, and all these accounts, they are quite unreliable, but uh, we do know like almost for sure, like practically for sure, because there were public accounts on this relationship and Woodruff would have protested, which he never did. Uh, so we know for quite for sure that he was really a disciple of uh, Shiv Chandra or Shiva Chandra, if you want the more Sanskritized way of pronouncing his name. Uh, so he was initiated in Tantra. We do have accounts that depict this initiation as a lightning bolt coming down to him, uh, Kundalini suddenly awakening in him, Shakti flowing through him, and so on. Most likely not historically, uh, historically accurate, but uh, the point was made at the time that Woodruff experienced that highest form and purest form of initiation that happened spontaneously upon sight of your Satguru. So that is what we what we have in terms of accounts. Um, but what we know for sure is that he was initiated, which means that he must have been fascinated and convinced by, uh, by the subject, by the practice of Tantra, by sadhana, tantric sadhana. And that seems to be a given. And what he does also in his explicitly own writings. There are some that he really wrote himself, but often still in collaboration with friends, uh, with Bengali friends. Uh, he tries to defend uh, Tantra as something scientific that is at the same time spiritual, religious, if you want, uh, that makes the best of, of both the material and the spiritual worlds. And that is basically the path to uh, liberate mankind or humanity. So he valued it very much. Did he or Arthur Avalon uh, succeed in their aims or to what extent did they succeed in their aims? They, they did to a large degree. What happened is that the study, the academic study of Tantra was uh, established following those Arthur Avalon publications. And that was really a radical change in attitudes because before you had these missionary accounts uh, and, and most Orientalists bought them uh, discussing Tantra as like orgies, cremation grounds, satanic rituals, license, uh, like everything that supposedly is an expression of what many people at the time discussed as the supposed degeneration of Indian culture and so on. So Tantra was seen as the, the worst evil of that. Um, and the... Uh, perspectives uh, of Orientalists changed after Arthur Avalon. And he basically almost single-handedly initiated, uh, or they, uh, the academic study of Tantra uh, that we still have uh, today. So 
uh, that is definitely a big impact. But then also uh, these writings served as uh, sources, information for practitioners all across the globe. So well, and actually until today, but especially till the 1970s, everyone in, interested in the subject, whether a sc scholar or practitioner or both, was consulting the Arthur Avalon books. So their influence can really not be underestimated. Fascinating. So I teach in different uh, contexts. I teach credit, you know, get the occasional um, sessional, which I love because I get to corrupt the youth, you know, at uh, undergrads, uh, credit, mostly non-credit uh, continuing studies, and also in more emic paradigms. And across all of <laughs> these three um, modes of education, whenever I teach on Tantra, mm -hmm. I always have to start off with this, this, this needed joke that, listen, Tantra is far more than black magic or good sex. If you want to have good sex or black magic, go for it. <laughs> but tantra, tantra is far more than either of these things. This is how I need to start off. So, yeah. <laughs> anyhow, um, uh, could you tell us a bit about some of the difference in uh, reception between the Bengali sources and, say, the, the, the theosophical publications? What do you notice about, you know, the... What what parallels or, or what you know what was interpreted differently about tantra? Uh, so you have a very negative attitude in, uh, for instance, theosophical writings towards tantra, uh, an attitude that is informed by people like Dayananda, uh, whose publications and the theosophists I, I, I just mentioned, uh, influenced by the typical missionary and orientalist perspectives. Now, the interesting thing is that theosophists had a big enemy, and those were missionary and orientalists. They admired uh, people like Dayananda, although they very soon had a quite radical falling out, but they, they admired these uh, organizations such as the Arya Samaj as the, the carriers of ancient Aryan wisdom, and they looked uh, uh, for, for information from them. So there was a curiosity about Tantra, but also the negative image of it as black magic and all that we just heard. So I, as I mentioned before, what the Bengalis do, they start the, a whole like, uh, a broad side of, of articles that challenge that view. And of course, in that Bengali ten, uh, context, the uh, perception of Tantra was much more positive. It was also contested. It was, of course, also uh, often shaped by these missionary and orientalist views and uh, incorporated in narratives of cultural degeneration and so on. So you had that. But it's a very different situation and con configuration from the Arya Samaj, for instance, the Bamu Samaj, uh, which is a uh, very quintessentially Bengali movement at the time. Uh, they, of course, did not praise the practice of Tantra just like that, but they invoked the Tantras very frequently and very centrally, which is due to what I mentioned earlier, uh, the prominence of the Tantras and specific tantris, uh, Tantric traditions in Bengal. So Tantra is always contested, also in that Bengali context, but the, the learned perception of it, at least, is much more positive. Usually you have a, a caveat like uh, Tantra can be 
abused as black magic, uh, like anything else, basically. Uh, but if you practice it rightly, then it is actually the most noble science that actually also leads to liberation and uh, in the best possible way without uh, renunciating the world, for instance. So that is a radical contrast. And uh, the, these Bengali perspectives, they transformed other perspectives quite, quite, quite a lot, actually. You touched on this at the outset, um, but it's worth asking uh, in more detail. What is the contribution of this book? What does this book do in the field of tantric studies? I try to fill uh, what to do what most people do uh, at the most basic level. I try to fill a number of lacunae. I, I try to shed some light on areas that I thought were uh, not taken care of uh, well enough. Um, but in, in the most abstract way, I try to offer a or to illustrate how a certain theoretical methodological approach can lead to significantly new uh, or uh, different insights into this or any given historical subject, actually. And, and that is uh, the, the approach of global religious history, which is a combination of religious studies uh, approaches, global historical approaches, and those mainly from uh, South Asian studies. So uh, speaking abstractly, the book is uh, a uh, contribution to research methods and uh, to, to show how certain theoretical angles can help us uh, understand things uh, better, at least that's what I believe. Um, but in terms of more concrete content, I really want to show that the history of these very central notions such as dharma, religion, uh, tantra, and related notions and, and subjects such as modernity, nationalism, you know, the subtitle of my book, basically, that those were not some kind of Western export into the rest of the world, but the outcome of uh, exchange and exchange is not is not to be understood romantically like everybody was holding hands and then dancing under rainbow and uh, we, we we do have the colonial context and everything that comes with it uh, but that should not mislead us to only look at europe and europeans and uh, that is something that i really wanted to 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 achieve uh, and show that this is not just some empty talk or virtue signaling or so, but that this really leads to uh, different research insights. And I, I, if, if you are like, familiar with the, 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 the number of, of subjects that I tackle in the book, I, I do believe that I fill a lot of gaps and uh, show some connections and uh, cover some new ground. And I, I might have screwed up in many places, but I hope that generally... <laughs> Well, like well, listen, I imagine it's the same for you where, you know, I, I say to folks, certainly my work isn't perfect, far from it. Yeah, it was it. But it's, but it's, but it's, but it's a contribution. Right? Exactly. And this work is without question a contribution. And I think a thought provoking one. Obviously, my field of expertise is the Puranas and, and the, you know, the epics. But, uh, you know, rumor has it, I've, I've spoken to a number of people in the field of Hindu studies. <laughs> <laughs> and looked at a number of their books and so within within 
within the field of, of tantric studies, it does seem like it's a fascinating contribution. And I like what you highlight. It's, it's um, so for example, the, 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 the book, well, both the books that, that I've written, um, they shed light on the Puranas, the, the Devi Mahatmya, the Surya Mahatmya, yeah. but they shed light on how to read Puranas, how to read uh, Indic texts. And this is shedding light on an important bridge in the history of the transmission of tantric ideas into the West and globally, but it's also shedding light on the categories through which one can examine religion. It's shedding light on the extent to which, hey, not everything comes from someone else. Human beings, uh, there's much of the human experience that's common and they find articulations in various cultures. And yes, people have been borrowing ideas since the beginning of time, without question, but different cultures often arrive at very similar problems and concepts in their own context. So, th- so that's something I think which is quite fascinating about the book. Mm-hmm. I, there's a big debate, and it's, it's probably the, the most ancient debate in religious studies about religious comparativism, and that touches on exactly the things that you address. Uh, is religion the, the notion of religion uh, and a Western expert? And, and there's a big portion of religious studies scholars who would make that point and who would say that if we talk about religion, for instance, in India, then we are committing an act of epistemic violence and we reproduce these colonial categories and uh, do cultural appropriation and so on. And, and much that is related to these arguments is very important. Uh, but if you take that too far, then you repeat exactly what you want to leave behind, uh, namely a focus on like Europeans doing stuff and the rest of the world apparently just sitting there and accepting it. Uh, so we do have to investigate these quote-unquote non-Western, and you see with these kinds of formulations how, how nonsensical these binaries are, like, like everything, non-zen, uh, everything non-Western. Uh, we have to uh, investigate these contexts, the people uh, in their own right. Uh, and, and, and then we, show, uh, we see that things like religion, uh, Dharma and so on are not just some fixed categories uh, that are also just owned by certain people, but that they are always in motion, they are always contested, they are always being renegotiated, they, they, they shift and change and, and are fluid. Uh, and, and I hope that uh, I could show some of, of those processes, these developments, um, in practice and also give some uh, or make some suggestions how that can be applied to other subjects as well, also religious comparativism in general. Fascinating. Was there anything else um, about the book that you hope you touch on or discuss? Hmm, I wouldn't know right now, actually. I mean, right. I think you, you address the most most uh, pressing things, most central things. Great. Um, are you currently still working on this topic? What's next for you? That's a good question. I, I recently relocated to Vienna uh, in the middle of all the mess that we find ourselves in. So I was busy with a lot of logistics and bureaucracy and lockdowns and quarantines and vaccinations and infections. I made the I went through the full program of uh, infection, vaccination and booster and all that was going on. Uh, so I'm kind of reorganizing myself in my new setting and I will certainly tackle 
uh, uh, something related to that in my next project, uh, which will probably fall into the area of um, all the, something that takes into account the history of religious studies in, in, its, in, the, in itself, like explicitly, and consider some of the, the, the central categories that I use since the 19th century. And that will certainly still relate to Bengal. And we'll certainly have to have you back on the podcast when that book is out, and it'll be of great interest to other channels as well. We'll cross-post it to really all the religious studies channels on the podcast. Um, but thank you for appearing today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure was mine. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Julian Srubi, who is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Vienna. We've been speaking to him about his brand new OUP publication, um, also sponsored by the American Academy of Religions um, uh, Culture and History series. Um, and this publication is called Global Tantra. Until next time, uh, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and keep contemplating uh, Global Tantra. Take care. <laughs> Thank you very much.